Welcome to Building Solidarities, a form of mutual pedagogy between the Barnard and Columbia campus and the public on constructed environments, urban life, and ecologies. This dialogue series, subtitled Racial Justice in the Built Environment, foregrounds the communities of Minneapolis, Nairobi, and New York in order to process the conditions around the murder of George Floyd and its aftermath in cities whose racial histories have long impacted the built environment and provoked recent sympathy protest. I'm Anuradha Siddiqui, and our dialogues are guided by the students in my course, Colonial Practices, taught in the Barnard and Columbia Department of Architecture and the Columbia Institute of Comparative Literature and Society. We welcome you into our seminar classroom. Our first dialogue, Institutional Inhabitations, will be archived on the websites of two arts organizations, Navatman in New York and the Go Down Arts Center in Nairobi. Our second dialogue, Building Historical Consciousness, will appear on the Red Nation podcast on SoundCloud. Our third dialogue, Monumental Landscapes, is hosted on the web platform of the journal Warscapes and on the Warscapes podcast on SoundCloud. Today, we hold our fourth dialogue, Environmental Reclamations, as part of the Environment in Context podcast for jadalia.com and statushour.com. I'm excited to announce the continuation of Building Solidarities next term under the guidance of students who will be the conveners of dialogues subtitled Transracial Architectures. Our aim in hosting these dialogues is to build mutual solidarities between our campus and our partners, seeing us all together as experts and as students, and to use our institutional platform to be as hospitable as possible and extend the political imaginaries, community futures, and solidarities that our partners may build with each other. As we study racial and environmental complexities and injustices, we remain vigilantly reflexive about the relationship between our campus and our neighbors in Harlem and elsewhere. We would like to acknowledge the communities, lives and futures affected as we study. The essential workers who make it possible for us to conduct work, the Lenape elders, relatives and children whose land our campus occupies and who have been stewards of this land and the displaced peoples and citizens of many indigenous nations for whom New York has been home. All black people, especially those whose enslavement is written into the wealth of our institution and the past and present Harlem neighbors to whose labor and disenfranchisement our campus owes a debt. Migrants from all over the world whose dispossession and sacrifices have ensured the prosperity of our institution, especially those impacted by United States imperial interests who arrive here to participate in its economy or flee homes targeted by its military. Those we have lost in a pandemic due to colonial practices that we have allowed to persist and those who remain at risk due to inhumane economies, carceral and security states and racist, casteist and misogynistic policies that we must actively refuse. As members of a university community, we heed Linda Tuiwai-Smith's warning that, quote, belief in the ideal that benefiting mankind is indeed a primary outcome of scientific research is as much a reflection of ideology as it is of academic training. It becomes so taken for granted that many researchers simply assume that they as individuals embody this ideal and are natural representatives of it when they work with other communities. 
end of quote. And this is from her book, Decolonizing Methodologies. In working with our partners, we take up her challenge to quote, question the assumed nature of those ideals and the practices that they generate. And in doing so, we make a wish for peace. Again, we welcome you into our classroom. This webinar format is not intended to produce a division between us at the virtual seminar table and our audience members, but rather a bridge to share our learning experiences in our seminar with a wider public. Alishine, Anissa, and Huma, we warmly welcome the three of you. We're eager to talk with you about your experiences with environmental scarcity and diaspora and the refugee camps and urban environments that have become the landscape of your embodied trajectories. We would like you to reflect upon your practice, research, and present activity in working and thinking on ecological reclamation. We believe that a dialogue between you forges meaningful, humane ecological futurities. I'll briefly introduce you to our audience and ask everyone to please consult the research guide for fuller profiles of these three global intellectuals. Alishine Osman is the executive director and a founding member of the Pennsylvania Center for Refugees and Immigrants, a space of mentorship, collaboration, and advocacy. He spent 17 years in the Dadaab refugee camps in Kenya, where from the age of five, he attended the first primary school established in the camps and completed secondary school with the first class of refugees to graduate within the camps. After learning many languages and laboring in many roles, he came to the United States where in the latest turn in his extraordinary life, he, he's completing an MBA this month. And somehow he's in a very quiet home as a new, as a parent of a new baby. Um, and speaking of parents of new babies, uh, we have Anissa Salat with us, who is a portfolio manager at Shurako, a program of One Earth Future Foundation, which works with small markets and sustainable fisheries to build food security, economic security, and community resilience. Anissa was born in Mogadishu, and after the civil war in Somalia began, migrated with her family across East Africa and the Middle East to Nairobi, where she grew up, and eventually to the United States, where she studied urban planning and community and economic development, working, among other things, with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's campaign in Minneapolis. Huma Gupta is an architectural and urban historian, postdoctoral fellow at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University, and the co-host of the Environment in Context podcast for jadalia.com and statushour.com, and thus our meta host for this discussion. Research for her PhD dissertation, Migrant Sarifa Settlements and State Building in Iraq, as well as practical work on infrastructure in Afghanistan, municipal administration in Syria, housing justice in Boston, and humanitarian response globally inform her two book projects, The Architecture of Dispossession and Dwelling and the Wealth of Nation. So with that, let's begin our discussion. Thank you all so much for joining us today and for sharing your valuable time with us. So we see in each of your backgrounds an act of ecological reclamation, whether on a local level, an international level, a planetary level, or a historical level. So with that, our first question is, what does ecological reclamation look like? What can be reclaimed through materialities and what can be reclaimed mentally, 
emotionally, psychologically, and historically. Hi, everyone. My name is Anissa Salat. In thinking about this question, I was reflecting on the current work we are doing with uh, One Earth Future Foundation. Our foundation focuses on eliminating uh, root causes of war, and a lot of that lies with environmental injustices. We have two programs working in Somalia. And then there are several other programs actually working elsewhere in the, in, in Colombia. And uh, we have headquarters also in, um, not headquarters, but an office in Vienna. The two programs that work in Somalia works on economic uh, development and, and uh, sustainable fisheries. And the program Shurako uh, gives loans to businesses in Somalia. We invest in responsible businesses. We require that businesses uphold environmental, social, and uh, governance structures required. And we use economic empowerment as a means to get at environmental sustainability and, and, and continuation. We also partner with our sister program, Secure Fisheries, which works on sustainable fisheries. One of the key projects that secure fisheries, curbing the effects of illegal fishing off the coast of Somalia. As you all are aware, Somalia is, has a very generous coastal line, the longest in mainland Africa. And unfortunately, due to the civil war, the coast has been exploited by foreign vessels in a way that's not sustainable and not fair to local fishers. And therefore, recently, we are engaged in these activities, bringing it together fishers and the government to curb that the effects of unsustainable illegal fishing, actually, uh, which is just detrimental to the habitat, can cause uh, conflict. As you can see, some piracy engagements in that area due to also that conflict for resources and competition for resources. So that's some of the ways we work on sustainable environmental initiatives yeah, in our program. Yeah, I think um, these are sort of very material forms of reclamation that I think are ways to reimagine Somalia in a very different kind of a landscape. And I wonder if either Ali Shine or Huma, you want to maybe speak to other forms of reclamation, a, a different way to think about maybe not only a material reclamation. So as Anu already mentioned, um, I spent 17 years of my life in a refugee camp in Kenya. I was very little when I came. And you often hear about Somalia as a failed state. The thing is, Somalia uh, collapsed government, but the society exists this late. If you go to Somalia today, uh, in terms of technology and the kind of resources available in Somali society is just immense. I mean, right now I'm here in Pennsylvania, but I can just send money to my family in Mogadishu and just goes into their cell phone and right instantly they will start using that money if they're using the bus or that kind of stuff. When I was five years, six years old, before the war, I lived in, in Kismayu, a beautiful city. Anissa mentioned Somalia has one of the longest shorelines in mainland Africa, over 3,000 kilometers squares. And our home was located across from the Indian Ocean. You could just sit in the balcony, the beautiful scenery, uh, and see the Indian Ocean. But the war has disrupted everything. And then we lost everything and had to go and live in a refugee camp. And we had to start from the scratch. And I had to, um, most of the refugees in, in the camp had to struggle and we will spend the next 17 years in a small house compared to our previous life in Somalia, where we lived in this beautiful house across from the Indian Ocean. We'll spend the next 15 years in a small house made of 
grass and mad sticks in, uh, in an environment that was before the settlement of the refugee was probably had trees, but had to be taken down by the engineers at the time so that the UN and other refugee agencies can install and build houses so that the refugees can live. And then that left us in, in a land with no trees and because of the dust and, and the harsh environment, the, uh, the houses that were built will eventually disintegrate and we had to start again from the scratch. So for the 17 years I lived in the camp after I graduated high school, I, I worked for several refugee agencies. And one of these, uh, one of these refugee agencies worth mentioning is um, Norwegian Refugee Council, an organization um, that was helping refugees um, build homes from the scratch. And they were using mad bricks, you know, and I, I worked with them uh, seven, eight months before I left the U.S. And I can vividly remember uh, the projects at the start when families lived in a small house, as I mentioned, made of sticks and plastic papers, but then those agencies come in and they had to build this structure and, and and some of those pictures. And as if you read some of the, you'll have also seen it. And so now coming to the, the US, knowing that I spent 17 years in a refugee camp, now that I'm here with this technology and everything else available, what can we do to help our community to integrate successfully and become part of the American society? It's still challenging in terms of access to language, cultural differences, and it is a uh, you know the thing is there are so many advocates in the, in the community in terms of helping the refugee community and you know, immigrants community access resources, whether it's health. We know that there is a lack of accessibility in terms of language, um, health insurance, and all that. But uh, the fact that social media and networking, people who knew back in who, who knew us back in the camp when they are settled in states like Texas or, or uh, cities like Houston or New York, they will search for your Facebook. They will search you on Facebook and say, Alashina, who used to work for the refugee camp, you know, who used to work and who used to help us, maybe now lives in somewhere in the states, and they will text you where they live. So in Pennsylvania, for example, in 2007, when I came, we only had two families, but today we have uh, one school district that has over 300 uh, Somali kids, and our population continues to, to increase. And as, as population continues to increase, of course, the needs of the, of the community will also uh, continue to grow. And so our services are very important in helping those communities access resources in, in our area. Thanks so much. And Huma, can I invite you into this question as well? I was just kind of lost listening to Anissa and Alishini's narratives because I think it's so intimately tied to their own embodied life experience. Initially, when I thought about this question, I kind of had a very academic answer drafted, but now inspired by the way in which they've answered this question, I guess my work on what I think about as ecological reclamation or what has inspired me to even care about that has been a deep dissatisfaction with the way in which we as a society 
label people or categorize people as being unproductive or certain forms of architecture as being unproductive or certain landscapes as being unproductive. The way in which, let's, for example, migrants and refugees are considered unproductive members of society or urban landscapes like uh, what people consider slums as being unproductive landscapes and certain forms of architecture like the reed and mud dwellings that I study in Iraq as being unproductive forms of building. And my, it's a deep dissatisfaction that comes from the particular trajectory of my own family. My mother's family and my father's family experienced the deep displacement mm. that happened in Western India and Punjab at the time of partition. And despite being from a relatively upper caste and uh, initially well-off family, my mother's family was plunged into two generations of dire poverty. And so my mother grew up in the urban slums of Amritsar and then the informal settlements of northeastern Delhi. And I would spend my summers there being introduced to a very different form of living and dwelling and having a very different relationship to environmental infrastructure like the large sewer that was you know right next to our neighborhood, the ideas of how to steal electricity or to navigate unpaved you know, streets and open sewers. And that landscape, you know, as a child really informed the the questions that I, and the deep dissatisfaction I had as an adult around the idea that somehow my own family was considered an unproductive problem for urban planners to solve or for architects to solve, or the way that we lived was a problem for the state or for economic development. And I guess I've spent my whole life trying to undo that, you know, in my work. But I've also been on the other side, as in I've been on the side of the problem solvers. You know, I have a master's in city planning. I worked in Syria. I worked in Afghanistan for a local organization that was trying to hold international donors accountable for the types of small infrastructure projects they were building in rural and insecure provinces all across the country. So things like hydroelectric dams and schools and clinics. So I've been on the other side of the problem solving equation. And now as an academic, I would say that my work on ecological reclamation is done through the sometimes often painstaking labor of historical research and visual and textual archives, collecting oral histories and literary narratives that reconstruct fragments of contested landscapes, which dispossess rural migrants, uh, in the case of Iraq, from southeastern villages and marshlands either left behind in the 20th century or the now erased industrial landscapes, urban wetlands, and reed and mud dwellings they created for themselves in cities they migrated to, like Baghdad. So that's kind of the way in which I'm thinking about ecological reclamation. This, the second part of that question about what can be reclaimed, I think, is also a very challenging one. What can be reclaimed often depends on what is your political orientation vis-a-vis <laughs> You know, in my case, my disciplines of urban planning and architectural history, economic conditions in which I'm thinking and writing, and the often anti-migrant, anti-refugee, anti-indigenous narratives that inform our notions of political sovereignty, what is, again, productive or unproductive, and ideas of private property. So I think ecological reclamation, whether it's done in my academic work or even through the Environment and Context podcast, is a way to recover an imagination of a world that is structured 
through an economics of abundance and not an economics of scarcity and is structured through this idea that we all have value, aesthetic, economic, and social, cultural, and our forms of building, especially in economically sustainable ways, have value. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just such a poignant answer to this. You know, one of the things I wanted to pick up on, you're talking about migrant refugee, indigenous communities that in many ways are devalued in within these systems of abundance. And yet some of what I think brings the three of you together as our guests today is the ways in which your own constructions of your own selves as valuable and the communities that surround you, you know, they have a sort of local level value, but then they also do something, I think, much bigger. And that it's that kind of planetary scale of value that gets created precisely through something like migration, which is something that each of you has in many ways been forced to experience rather than participated in willingly. That I think might be a way that we can begin to think about a planetary kind of ecology. But maybe that also leads into the next question that that we've carved out. Thank you for your enriching uh, ideas so far. And the question is, how do you define your relationship with migrant, refugee, or diaspora communities in your work? And how do you negotiate these relationships? It picks up actually on, I think, what Huma ended on. Uh, sure, I, I can start. So, you know, this is a very important question for me as a historian in terms of method and the relationship with the so-called historic subject, many of whom are still alive. I think that the first thing that I try to remind myself is that the diaspora is not an even community. There are a lot of uh, differences in the diaspora, class, ethnic, religious, caste differences that inform the position and the types of information and narratives that we receive as historians who are maybe interacting with individuals in the diaspora. So for instance, in the case of Iraqi history, the Iraqi diaspora in the UK or the US that gets to have the loudest voice happens to also often come from the large landed elite class in Iraq. And what that does is that it distorts what is presented in the US as Iraqi history. It biases it towards a much more middle or upper class sensibility of the history of Iraq that then erases the perspectives of people who I would say actually built uh, the modern state of Iraq, right? Through their labor, through their bodies, through the dispossession of their land. And so one of the things I've tried to do is really form long-term relationships with individuals who ended up in the diaspora, but are from these migrant settlements um, in Baghdad. So one in particular is an Iraqi novelist by the name of Abdullah Sahi. And what I've tried to do in that relationship is to amplify Sahih's voice in the diaspora through, for instance, getting one of his novels translated from Arabic to English, which talks about his life and his growing up in a migrant settlement. Thus far, all the Iraqi novels kind of represent a very middle or upper class sensibility. So we don't really have access, you know, students here do not have access to a lower class, a poorer um, perspective from 
Iraq. And by, you know, hopefully publishing that novel, it will give people access to a very different perspective of what it felt like physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically to grow up in one of these settlements. And that can help counter these top-down narratives that uh, the migrant slum is a place of misery and disease and death, when in fact, it's also a place of joy and romance and intrigue and, and folly and, you know, all kinds of... So that's one really important thing. And the other aspect of that relationship is also having conversation between the formal archive and the individuals who I'm interviewing. So for instance, I found this never finished uh, archival film in an urban planners archive in Greece. And this film depicted one of the largest migrant settlements in Baghdad in the 50s. And it happened to be the same neighborhood that Abdullah was from. And I showed Abdullah, who's now in his 60s, you know, this film of the neighborhood that he grew up in, which he would have otherwise no access to. On my phone, I showed him a one minute clip of it. And it was crazy because up until that moment that the memories of that neighborhood only resided in his mind or in his writing. And there was a way in which the encounter between something that is produced by an urban planner, in, in essence, to justify the erasure and demolishment of this neighborhood, is also able to trigger a whole new set of memories, a whole new set of imaginings for Abdullah as he's narrating you know, his life story in this neighborhood. And so for me, I think building those kind of very intimate and accountable relationships where I'm not just trying to extract information from someone for my PhD or for my book, but actually giving back in whatever way that is possible by amplifying their voice or getting a larger audience for their work or, you know, literally writing them in <laughs> to the history of Iraq. You know, in every article I write, I cite him or in every book I will publish, he will have a voice. That is the kind of ethic, I think, in my work. Thank you. I can't help but um, much of what you've said speaks to a project that Ali Shine and I undertook. And I think particularly in this problematic of narration and, and history writing in particular, I can't help but reflect on Ali Shine, your own work, independent of the work we did together in not just this kind of peace building work to build up refugee communities so that they can have a futurity somewhere else, but also your your many interventions in helping other people write histories. I'm not the only researcher that you've worked with, that you worked with in Dadaab. And so I wonder if you want to interject also. We also had a, I guess, a, a nice conversation over some images. <laughs> As uh, as a refugee, as a, an immigrant, and you know, as uh, Anu mentioned, I I worked with a lot of researchers. You may have heard of uh, Cindy Holst, who who wrote during her PhD. She was in the camp. Her name is Cindy Holst, and she uh, wrote this book Nomad. And I also worked with Anu, but I also have the passion for for refugees and immigrants in general. Uh, when uh, last week. When the Supreme Court struck the uh, DACA recipients, it touched me personally because, you know, over the last uh, 13 years that I lived in the U.S., I have seen how the immigrants and refugees, of course, a lot of uh, American communities are very welcoming. Of course, there is also a number of people who are against a lot of immigrants, uh, the idea that they take the, you know, the, uh, the job and all that stuff. 
you know, and, and we, we cannot always talk about the Somali situation without talking about the colonization in entire Africa, uh, you know, the scramble for Africa, petitioning Africans. And of course, the, that those will have a, a negative impact. Somali was colonized by three nations, you know, northern part of Somalia was colonized by, by, by Britain. The uh, eastern part of Somalia, which is the modern day Djibouti, was colonized by French, Italian colonized the southern part of Somalia. And all this played a huge impact on how the Somalia uh, people will govern themselves in the next uh, 20 to 30 years after the independence in 1960. So uh, me coming to the... Uh, to the United States is not my own fault, but I ended up here for, for, for many reasons, including colonization, the impact that had on Somalia, the Somalian government not having policies and structures to, you know, to transition from, from war and, 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 and then after war. So uh, this organization, Pennsylvania Center for Refugees and Immigrants, one of our mission is to connect communities to transform lives, not only is Bakri uh, helping refugees access resources in the community, but we also organize events, we show documentaries to educate uh, the mainstream community about refugees and immigrants and, and what they can contribute to uh, our American society. And so over the years, we have been organizing Know Your Neighbor dinner event where People will bring their own meal. And last time, 2018, we have over 300 people from our community come together. That's immigrant, refugees, uh, mainstream community. Everybody brings their meal and, and they have this opportunity to chat and talk and understand their cultural differences and have that platform that they can uh, negotiate and, and talk the differences and realize these people, like you think they're refugees, but they are part of the community. They go to the same maybe church, they go to the same mosque, their children go to the same school that their child goes. So. These people have come a long way, but they are part of a community and we have to find ways to integrate and become part of the entire American society to help each other so we can all be successful. Yeah, I, I worked with a lot of refugees in Dadaab and also, um, you know, in the Somali region in Ethiopia and many refugees who were about to be resettled to a third country. And often they would say, I don't want to go to the United States because there it's really bad to be black and also Muslim. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that in some ways, Alishine, you and Anissa, you know, just to get back to this question of narrations, you really have an unlocked ways to re-narrate what it is to be Somali. Um, and Anissa, you and I have talked a lot about, about Ilhan Omar, one of my heroes, but in all the years that you and I have known each other. But I think I often even look to you, especially as um, someone who believes in a Somali feminism. And in some ways, as Alishine pointed out, the collapse of the Somali government wasn't, it's not about the failure of a society. It was the failure of a narrative. This question of like a failed state, you know, we might ask what did they fail at exactly? And I do think that this narrative of failure is one that can be radically rewritten through something like this ecological narrative that you are making possible in your work. And Eve, I remember when I first met you, you were sort of, you were so adamant about urban planning as a background that would allow you to do some meaningful practical work. And I wonder if you can, talk a little more about all of that 
and how you've maybe put that to work? Um, yes, I think going to Bryn Mawr and uh, taking your classes and doing urban planning was really opened my mind to the power of the physical environment, what it means and how it impacts the social and economical environment and um, conflict even and peace. And, you know, at, at heart, I always wanted to, you know, I had these ideals of solving conflict all over the world, especially in Somalia. And so... I think the physical environment gives you that focus to, to analyze what are the power dynamics here, uh, what's being said in this context and how you can change that. And, and just the migration and the mobility because of the civil war just forces you to live in different contexts, interact with different cultures. Like Ali Shina said, you know, you, and, and as you restated, being Somalian, being Muslim, it's it's very complex identities to have in 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 the U.S. and um, uh, and Alishina, I do get uh, that question: Where are you from? And I send people to a guessing, you know, a game. <laughs> where do you think? And it's interesting the answers I get. Almost never Somalia. Uh, so it's it's uh, you know those are conversations that are interesting. Uh, I take that as an opportunity to connect on an individual level, change the narratives. And it's a huge, uh, you know, you almost feel like you have that responsibility to uh, defend the integrity of uh, Somalia, Africa, you know, or Muslims in general. And it's a big undertaking, but, you know, you change what you can with the narrative and uh, on an individual level. And like you all said, um, the narrative is not all failed state, you know, with the question about how the diaspora, how we work with the diaspora to, to, in these contexts is, you know, we at the foundation see them as an asset. Um, diaspora play a huge role in the development of Somalia. I mean, the, the remittances form 23% about uh, with the latest estimate in the GDP of Somalia. So that's a, that's a huge uh, role that the Somalis play and we tap into that as an asset um, in terms of when we are designing the investments. One of the projects we did was partnering a diaspora person, a farmer, and uh, development institution to each chip into the sort of uh, the deal and, and give a grant to these farmer farmers and to develop and but also loans uh, where the farmer has the uh, opportunity to pay back and get affordable loans um, and so it's 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 again managing narratives and utilizing uh, diaspora as a you know opportunity rather than uh, a problem that has occurred because of civil war etc. And uh, I think uh, it, it's it's overall for me it's that economical uh, you know opportunity that we can tap into. Yeah, I think if Somalis have done one thing, they have not bought into the idea of the nation state as sold by the liberal West. So I think on this earth as it is now, one gets soundly punished for not buying into that. But I think that when we talk about a kind of a failure, again, to just use that word and problematize that word, when I think of a kind of the causes, the root causes of the civil war and the diaspora, they weren't just a breakdown of civil society. They really were problems of food and water security and the ways in which food, water, and other resources 
were being controlled, mismanaged. And I think that that's an international and planetary action that is not something rooted in just one place. And so whatever happened in 1991 in Somalia, in some ways was the result of things that had been happening already all around the world. So these are ways in which the work that you're doing to reclaim something like a fishery, a set of fisheries on the coast of this country, as you say, that has the largest coastline in Africa, that reclamation is doing something really radically more than just um, a kind of small scale political economic development. It is actually putting up resistance to some very large structures, actually. You can't say it that way because of your job, but I can say it that way. Um, my question is, when are you looking for a story in your work? And you can interpret story creatively or capaciously. What sources do you trust? Whose accounts do you draw from to locate the histories that are meaningful to you? It is it is really very difficult, especially coming from the uh perspective of where I came from, Somalia and refugee camp, uh, it's really quite challenging to to get really information regarding, especially if you're talking about the Somali war, for example, and the country. Of course, you rely on things like artifacts, you know, um, documentaries, government websites, this primary source, uh, that's, that is, that's something up for debate. But I think a lot of... Uh, um, the communities, especially Somalis, are people really are well known for their poetry. And if we are talking about perspective of Somali, I think the uh, the primary source will have to be. Uh, besides the one, you know, of course, we we you can't talk about the Somali society without talking about the Muslim, because majority of the Somalis, hundred percent of the Somalis, are Muslim. So um, all the information is in their daily lives. Uh, within the context of Quran, uh, but uh, storytelling and poetry play a significant role in the Somali community and the Somali society. Again, oral tradition is oral storytelling, very important concept. You know, this uh, Anissa can also share this with us. Somalis um, have this tradition of passing information from one generation to another, not in written, but also in oral. For example, my parents will tell me, hey, this is the name of your father. His father's name is this, his grandfather's name is that. And those information is passed you know, from generation to generation. So right now we live in the US, but even when we are sharing our stories in events uh, or bringing people together over, you know, over a dinner event or something like that, we still have to share some of the stories that entangled in our lives as a society. Because of course, songs, you know, sharing the emotional deals of, uh, besides government on government uh, websites, uh, documentaries. Um, I think the most important thing for the Somali uh, society is uh, poetry and, 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 and oral traditions. I agree with uh, Alishine. Um, oral medium is the biggest and most reliable, we would say. Although we, on a professional level, um, we do get into trouble with that because you know these days everything has to be written and you know there has to be a record of things. And um, you know at Chiraco, um the biggest source of, uh, of information that we rely on actually is our field uh, managers who are based in Somalia. We really 
focus and prioritize the local voice in our work because they are very in touch with what's going on on the ground. Uh, they understand the political, uh, geographical, and social dynamics and cultural dynamics in the in the in the area. I think that's one of the transformative things that the foundation. Yeah, I think I'll kind of speak about it in a slightly different way because I earlier on I mentioned film archives. Recently, um, just this year at the Independent Iraqi Film Festival, Hossein al-Asadi, who is a uh, Iraqi filmmaker based in Basra, very young, early 20s, premiered a short film called She Was Not Alone, which is about a woman named Fatima who lives in the marshes in southeastern Iraq. And as someone who has been working on uh, researching uh, Iraqi history and particularly these landscapes for the past 13 years, I can tell you that almost all the visual archival evidence, whether it's photographs or films or textual um, um, written evidence, whether it's uh, you know autobiographies, uh, government reports, uh, secret service, kind of like CIA intelligence reports, whatever I read, there's a way in which the marshes are described in deeply uh, distorted ways, right? They're either places that harbor criminals or revolutionaries. It's places where it's very hard to extract taxes from, places that are hard to navigate. Uh, so there's always a lure of danger, a lure of tribalism. There's a fear of that it's not a place for the normal, quote unquote, Iraqi citizen to go to. And there, there's a way in which the people who are coming from the marshes to the cities, they're described in very derogatory terms. Uh, rural migrants from that area are called um, in this in the cities called Shargawiya, like people from the east. And these are very, very derogatory terms um, as a way to other people, because by virtue of them being mostly Shia, by virtue of them uh, living in the marshes, by virtue of them preferring to build reed structures, there's very, you know, a lot of reasons for this. So all the films I've seen, whether it's produced by the Iraq Petroleum Company in the 50s or films that are produced by UNESCO right now, are either demonizing this landscape or glorifying it as a sort of Edenic landscape that we must, you know, the international community must come together to uh, restore both of these projects, you know, of destroying and restoring are sometimes two sides of the same coin because they objectify uh, this landscape in a way that it relates to the agenda of whoever is doing the intervening. In fact, for Environment and Context, we just did a recorded a podcast with Katerina Scaramelli, who's a professor at BU in anthropology and work uh, is publishing a book called How to Make a Wetland. And she speaks beautifully of the, the problem of intervening in these types of landscapes. This film that I saw this year um, at the film festival talks about this woman, Fatima. She is the protagonist. She's the only one who speaks and appears on camera. She lives by herself in the marshes. She's maybe in her 50s. Most of her family members have died or moved away to the cities. And it just takes you through her day-to-day -day activities where she's tending to the buffalo, where she's harvesting reeds, uh, some for trading, some for uh, weaving. Uh, where she is, you know, making her bread for the week. And what's so beautiful and powerful about this film as an alternative to all the other uh, visual productions on the marshes is that it, it actually doesn't try to rep represent it as anything in particular. It's the, the emphasis on the kind of quotidian, the ordinariness of the fact that First of all, this woman is allowed to exist in this space and the title being she was not alone, as in that 
her relationship to the environment and how she relates to the animals and that this is a very dynamic living world that she is participating in. And in the film, she talks about her active choice not to move to the cities and to live in a brick and concrete small room, uh, which she would pay uh, a lot for and not wanting that lifestyle when she has this vast landscape of the marshes. And so in some ways, this small film really revalues both the aesthetic and the environmental and the uh, lifestyle choice to to belong and live and dwell in this type of landscape where you have ephemerality to deal with, where you read uh, on Marouge, which talks about ephemerality in a sort of negative way in the context of being a refugee, but in the context of choosing to live in the marshes where you're constantly rebuilding the structures and there's a daily maintenance of, of everything that is required for your life to be sustained in that landscape, that that is somehow okay. And no one needs to intervene or protect her or to transform that landscape and have an opinion on it. So to me, that film was one of the most powerful counterpoints to almost everything that has ever been written about. But these types of sources are few and far between in the world. And when they do appear, it's important to really showcase them in, in our work. Mm. This is a very lovely note to end on. Um, we had one more question, and I think I would like to invite Kojo to ask the question. Uh, we won't have time to discuss it, but in some ways you have all been discussing this all through. So maybe Kojo, you can uh, give us our last question. You know, our question is, what materials, evidence, or context do you pay attention to what can your material experiences teach us about environmental futures? Maybe asking a question is the way that we should stop our conversation. Um, it has been my pleasure to host Building Solidarities, Racial Justice in the Built Environment, along with the students in my Colonial Practices course. We welcome your feedback and ongoing conversation. And thank you very much and good night. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.